Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I can't believe it took me four episodes to talk about some haunted houses, but here it is. Tonight, I'm discussing the Borley Rectory in Essex, England. Then I head over to West Piston, Pennsylvania to talk about the Smurl haunting. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome, everyone, to this fourth episode of Season 1 of Small Town Secrets. And like I said in the opening, it has taken a few episodes to get to haunted houses, but I did it. And I'm sure this will be the first of many haunted house episodes. Um, Probably the only one for this season, though. I have the whole season pretty much planned out, so unless I get some kind of wild hair and change something, I think I know what's going on for the rest of the episodes. But tonight, we are discussing two haunted houses. One over in Essex, England, and then one here in the U.S. in West Pinston, Pennsylvania, which I believe is a suburb of Pittsburgh. Before we get into the show proper, I just want to take a second and thank everyone for listening and continuing to listen. I'm going to move the microphone. If it makes a squeak noise, deal with it. Um, we've had pretty impressive numbers, at least for me, over the past couple of weeks, and I'm very happy with the progress, and 
I am having a blast doing this show, and I hope you guys are having a blast listening to it. Just one last quick thing. I just want to give a, a little disclaimer. There is some sensitive talk later in the show, especially during listener stories, about some sexual abuse, some rape, some stuff like that. So I just want to let everyone know that that's coming up, and uh, that way you're prepared and you can do what you feel you need to do. So I think it's going to be a, a short intro for this fourth episode, and we're just going to jump right into it. Before we get on to the Borley Rectory in Essex, England, I have a promo from the Can't Make This Up History podcast. It's a great show that, really, if you're listening to this show, there's no reason why you shouldn't be listening to the uh, Can't Make This Up, because he just goes through, he, he digs out these little gems of odd history, interesting bits from back in the past, and he usually has a guest on to talk about it, so I'm going to play a promo from him. And when we get back, we'll be talking about the Borley Rectory in Essex, England. Hi there. My name is Kevin, and I host the Can't Make This Up History podcast. Before starting the Can't Make This Up History podcast, I taught college history for five years, during which I learned the best history is told through amazing, unbelievable stories that actually happened. For example, did you know that the Nazis believed they could use witchcraft and astrology to shape government policy? Or that in the 1800s, New York City shipped its prisoners, poor and insane, to a miserable island in the East River where convicts served as orderlies for the mentally ill? Did you know that a 1920s con artist masquerading as a Native American chief was able to bilk European aristocrats out of millions and attracted beetle-sized crowds wherever he went? Or that the Franklin Expedition, lost to the Canadian Arctic in one of history's greatest unsolved mysteries for over 150 years, was finally discovered in 2014 by following Inuit oral history? The Can't Make This Up History podcast is dedicated to telling these stories and more through interviews with a wide array of guests, from academic historians to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. New episodes of the Can't Make This Up History podcast are available every other Tuesday on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And a special thank you to Small Town Secrets for letting me come on the podcast and talk to you today. The Borley Rectory in Essex, England is known, or was known, as the most haunted house in England. The house was located in the tiny parish of Borley in Essex. It was located on Hall Road next to the Borley Church. It was first built for Reverend Henry Dawson Elias Bull. I do want to point out one thing. There's a lot of H names in this story. Henry, Harry, Henry again. I think there's another one. But uh, just pay attention. You'll be able to keep them all straight. The rectory was built for him in 1862. The nearby church may date back as far as the 12th century. A year later, in 1863, is when paranormal activity would start at the rectory. It started small, with footsteps in hallways. And even though the rectory was only a year old at the time, which, you know, there isn't really, I mean, a new building and all of a sudden it's haunted, there's a local legend that might give us an answer for such early activity. Legend has it that a Benedictine monastery was built in the area in 1632. 
a monk from the monastery started an affair with a nun from a nearby convent. They were found out, the monk was executed, and the nun was bricked up in the walls of the covent, alive. It truly is a wild story, and actually has no basis in history. Monks weren't executed for adultery, they were probably just kicked out of the monastery, and I don't think that uh, the proper punishment back then or ever would be to brick a nun up alive in, its own, in their own convent. These little hauntings would go on for some time. But on July 28, 1900, four, that's right, count them four, of Bowles' daughters saw an apparition of a nun 40 yards from the house. The girls attempted to talk to it, but the closer they got, it disappeared. And if you look in the show notes, I have a photo that is of a, an apparition on the grounds that might be this uh, alleged nun. Over the years, other strange things would be seen at the rectory, such as a headless horseman driving a coach around the grounds. Henry Bull would pass away in 1892, and soon his son, Reverend Henry, Harry, which is his nickname, took over residency of the home. Both father and son would describe the ghost and things seen at the rectory as fun entertainment. They even built a summer home so they could enjoy after-dinner cigars and watch the ghostly apparitions. It seemed for the most part that the Bull family enjoyed their ghost friends and the hauntings they experienced were relatively peaceful. However, as the years went on, these hauntings would sour. Henry, Harry Bull, Henry Bull, the, the son, I can't even keep the name straight, would die on June 9, 1927. In the following October, Reverend Guy Smith and his wife would move into the house. Shortly after moving in, Smith's wife would supposedly find the skull of a young girl in the home. Soon after this, the Smiths would report a slew of strange encounters, such as sounds of servant bells ringing, despite them being disconnected. Lights and windows and unexplained footsteps. Smith's wife believed she saw a horse-drawn carriage at night. Could this be the same carriage the Bulls saw? The Smiths contacted the Daily Mirror and asked for a reporter to be sent over. A reporter did show up and would go on to write a series of articles about the home. The paper also arranged for paranormal researcher Harry Price, see there's another Harry, to investigate the rectory. Price was a famed researcher and debunker of hoaxers and a member of the SPR. Many of Price's experiences in the home would be first-hand and most of those experiences would mirror what others had seen and experienced. Price would continue to investigate after the Smiths left the home only a year later. After their departure, the church had some difficulty finding a replacement. However, in October 1930, Reverend Lionel Foster and his wife, Mary Ann, would move into the residence. It would be at this point when the activity in the house would take a turn. Windows would break, furniture would move, objects would vanish, and people would be locked in and out of various rooms. From there, the activity would only intensify. One night, Mrs. Foister would be thrown from her bed, slapped by an unseen force, had objects thrown at her, and was almost suffocated by her mattress. Shortly after this attack, the messages would start. 
Mrs. Foister would start to see strange messages scrawled on the walls of the house. These messages seemed to be pleading for Foister for help. They would say such things as, Marianne, please help, get, and Marianne, light mass prayers. And if you go to the website at stscast.com, I have pictures of both of those messages on the walls. One's an actual picture of the message on the wall, and the other one is like a tracing or a rubbing, which I found on a very obscure site, which I did link to. It is a, it's, well, it's, it's obscure in a way that it seems very old. It's just white and text and pictures, but it is, it does have the domain name as borleyrectory.com. But it was interesting so much in that they had found a copy of one of the books written about the Borley Rectory, and inside it had all these notes and notations, and that's kind of what the site is about. But it was one of the only places where I could find a picture of the, uh, hold on a second, of the, of the light mass prayers writing. You can find pictures of the other message all over the place, but the, the one about uh, lighting mass prayers seems to be kind of a hard picture to come by, even on the internet, but I did find it. In 1935, the Foisters would move out of the house, and Price would then lease the property to conduct a year-long investigation. He put out an ad looking for volunteers to help the investigation, and this is what the ad read. Haunted House. Responsible persons of leisure and intelligence, intrepid, critical, and unbiased, are invited to join a rota of observers in a year's night and day long investigation of alleged haunted house in home counties. Printed instructions supplied, scientific training or ability to operate simple instruments and advantage. House situated in lonely hamlet, so own car is essential. Write box H.989, The Times, EC4. Price and his 48 observers did spend a year studying the home, and according to Price, with the evidence gathered, he had pieced together the mystery of the Borley Rectory. During a seance, an alleged spirit named Mary Lierre told her tale. She was a nun from France. She left her covent to marry Henry Waldgrove, whose wealthy family's manor house once stood where the rectory now stood. Later, her husband apparently strangled her and buried her body in the cellar. So, not exactly walled up in the walls of the covent, but buried there nonetheless. Five months after Mary's first visit, another spirit promised that the rectory would burn down that very night and provide proof of the nun's body. The spirit was right, but its placement was a bit off. Eleven months later, on February 27, 1939, the new owner of the house, Captain W.H. Gregson, would be unpacking boxes and knock over an oil lamp, setting the rectory on fire and gutting it. After the fire, Price would uncover some small bones that did seem to be the remains of a young woman. The remains would later be given a proper burial, even though there are some out there that claim they were nothing but pig bone. I'm going to take a little sidetrack here. I used an image of the burnt-out husk of the rectory for the episode tile. Uh, you'll see that on Twitter, on the on the webpage, or depending on what podcatcher you use, it might show up as the artwork for the show. And I didn't know it at the time, but apparently in this picture, 
there is a f- ghostly floating brick. If you go to stscast.com and take a look at the pictures, I've I've put a picture on there of the zoom in so of this brick. I don't think it's a brick. For I just thought it was just a hole in a wall somewhere, but apparently it's a brick that is floating in midair. Uh, some say it is a ghostly apparition of someone, you know, some unseen force levitating this brick. Some people say it's a, I guess it's a picture from, um, I'm not sure, the Times or something, saying that the photographer just threw the brick. I didn't even know it was a brick. Like I said, I thought it was just a hole in the wall. But you can you can go in and take a look at that. There would be a lot of skepticism to Price's claims and stories and findings after his death in 1948. Charles Sutton, a Daily Mail reporter, was hit with a rock while at the rectory of Price. He claimed he grabbed Price and found his pockets filled with stones. Three of Price's associates investigated his claims and found that he may have faked some of his evidence. The Society for Cyclical Research, the SPR, concluded that a lot of the activity could be attributed to rats and the strange acoustics of the house itself. It had an odd shape, apparently, that made some, made for some very interesting acoustical noises. Uh, Marianne Foister would later claim in life that she saw no ghost and that the odd noises were caused by the wind. I read somewhere that she just did this in order to take heat off of her because she was having an affair. I don't know how that was going to take... I don't know how that was going to direct attention away. That People always say that, but I don't know if that if that's the truth at all. The Borley Rectory will be permanently demolished in 1944. And if you look at the site today, it is just a driveway to a much larger property. No house, they didn't really build anything on there, just an extension of something now. But I want to go back... This kind of seems to be how all of these ghost stories, especially in the in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and up into the 70s, always kind of ended up. It was always a lot of, oh, some of it was true, some of it wasn't. He faked some evidence. He didn't fake anything. I find it hard that the SPR's research that concluded that it was just rats and uh, funky acoustics were could be so... Like definitive. I mean, I respect the SPR. They have done some great work. But the house wasn't there when you did these uh, investigations. It had already burnt down. So you can't really go in and recreate these things. You're just drawing conclusions. It might have happened, might not have happened. But like a lot of these stories, I think there's just a lot of conjecture. There's nothing to say that these things did happen. There's nothing to say that these things didn't. And I think Price got a lot of backlash, especially after he died. But I sit there, I think, okay, Price spent most of his time debunking hoaxes, catching people that were hoaxing things. So would he later go on to hoax himself? I don't know. I don't think so. But I also look at him and go, you know, there were a couple things that he could have done to really help substantiate his claims. And he didn't do them. He could have had those bones looked at by a coroner or something of that nature and have had someone, had an expert, confirm, yeah, these are human remains or no, these are the bones of a pig or whatever. He also, and I don't know, maybe he did this and he didn't find anything, but I didn't see anything about it. He also could have 
looked for land records back in the day to see if there was the manor the manor for uh, the walled groves as the spirit claimed like if he would have found that deed or found some sort of documentation that said hey this is what was on this property back in the day that would have gone those two things would have been leaps and bounds to help corroborate his story but he didn't appear to do those things and he would die in 1948 and people would just you know pick over his story ever since but that is the story of England's most haunted house and make what you will of it I th I'm, I'm leaning towards that I think some things happened I think some things didn't this is just speculation I think that Mrs. Foister probably backpedaled later in life just because she didn't want to be seen as a kook so she said, hey, I didn't see anything. I also did read a little bit about how a lot of the, ch the bold children, when asked, said that they, oh, we never saw any of that. Uh, but you were in a time when all this paranormal stuff wasn't as accepted as it is now. It's still not accepted that much. And, you know, you, you know, it would be very easy. And a lot of people would just go, oh, no, 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 I didn't say that. They're, you know, the backpedaling would begin. So there's just a lot of stories there's a lot of back and forth with it, but that's what it is. So we're going to move on to story number two in West Piston. I'm sorry, not Piston. West Pitton, Pennsylvania. In 1973, the Smurl family... And here's, a, here's a, a fun side note. I picked this one because I really like saying Smurl. The Smurl family, Jack and Janet, and their children, Heather, Shannon, Don, and Karen, all daughters, were forced from their home in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, after flooding from Hurricane Agnes. The family made the decision to pack up and move into the other half of the split house that Jack's parents lived in. This house sat on Chase Street in West Pittston, Pennsylvania. For the first year, things in the house were normal and quiet. However, in 1974, after they started fixing up the property, strange things would begin happening in the family's new home. You hear that a lot, that uh, activity starts to bubble up when people are remodeling or fixing up properties. Just like the Borley Rectory, things started off small. Disappearing tools, odd stains appearing for no reason. A lot of times after they had just painted fresh paint, then there'd be a stain. Including a large stain on the floor that would return whenever it was cleaned up. Eventually, small appliances would catch fire, even if they were unplugged. Despite the odd happenings, life for the Smurl seemed to be moving on up. Jack got a promotion at work and became his daughter's softball coach. Janet became pregnant with twins, I believe, and all the girls were doing well in school. But soon, all that would change. Money would start drying up. I'm assuming because of the repairs, maybe, that was taking more out than, than they had originally planned. Jack's mother, Mary, suffered a heart attack. 
and the family would start to see strange black objects floating around the house. Then the voices began. And these were not the eerie, ghostly voices that you would think, but these were the voices of Mary and Janet themselves. Janet would swear she would hear her mother-in-law calling her name, but on the other side of the house, Mary was sure she heard Janet and Jack get into heated arguments. After the voices started, Janet would claim that she was being molested by some unknown entity. While lying in bed one night, Jack reported to hear the whispering of a woman. He would turn to look at his wife and only see a small black thing run up her leg. In 1977, after giving birth to two girls, the activity would increase in violence. Janet would be thrown from the bed. The family dog was thrown into a wall. Seven-year-old Shannon would be cut by a ceiling fan blade one day, and when the fan fell from the ceiling. Shannon would also be dragged out of a room by an unseen force on several occasions. In the midst of all this, objects would continue to be thrown around the house and small fires would continue to start. One evening, Jack had fallen asleep while watching TV. He was violently awoken as he was thrown to the floor and a paralysis came over him. He saw an old woman on top of him with red eyes and yellow gums attempting to rape him. After this, Janet couldn't take it anymore and she contacted Ed and Lorraine Warren. And if you hadn't heard, Lorraine Warren passed away recently at the age of 92. The Warrens did an investigation. They interviewed the family and neighbors who confirmed hearing strange voices and sounds from the home. And this coupled with the Warrens' skill set led them to identify four entities within the house. One was a harmless elderly woman. Two was a man who died in the home. Three was a young and potentially violent girl. And four was a demon who allegedly was using the other spirits to wreak havoc on the Smurl family. Ed Warren contacted Father McKenna, a trusted colleague of the Warrens. The priest performed an exorcism, but to no avail. Months later, McKenna would ask permission for a second exorcism, but the church would deny his request. They were concerned about rumors that the Smurls were hoaxing the entire thing, perhaps to try and sell the house. Which I don't buy. If you're trying to sell a house, you don't go saying it's haunted and it's full of demons. No one buy that house. It doesn't work that way. It was also said that Ed suffered a heart attack at the hands of the entity in the house around this time. Janet, unhappy with the results from the exorcism, then contacted the media. And this didn't do much good. Their house quickly became a hotbed of reporters, cameramen, and newscasters. A media circus ensued, and no help came to the Smurls from this action. Lorraine then contacted a medium by the name of Mary Alice Rinkman, and along with corroborating testimony from the Warrens, the Archdiocese okayed another exorcism. This exorcism seemed to work, at least for a few months. After a short time, the activity crept back into the house. Fed up with their plight, the Smurl family moved and left the house in 1988 the activity followed them to their new home. However, after another exorcism was performed at their new home, the haunting activity stopped for good. The people who moved into the house after the Smurls left 
never reported any activity in the home. And I guess that makes sense. If whatever this was, for whatever reason, decided to follow the family around, maybe it just didn't stay at the property. Now the property is fine. Because the people that moved into the house after the Smurls left never reported any activity in the home. In 1991, a made-for-TV movie, I believe, entitled The Haunting, would be released based on the Smurls' encounters. And this movie is also based on a book of the same name. And of course, just like the other, the other story and almost any ghost story, especially if it involved the Warrens, there was a lot of skepticism towards it. And I'm not going to get into what, you know, I'm not going to get into the Warrens and what people think about them. This isn't the show for that. But, you know, the big thing is people always think these people are doing this for money. And that never, like, that doesn't make sense. These, I mean, this family's life was, for the most part, ruined because of this. They had to leave a home. The media, you know, overtook their lives. And they, I mean, they made nothing off of this. So why would you go and make up all this stuff only for it to just, you know, blow up in your face like that? I mean, people do make money off of these things, off of these stories, but it never seems to be the people at the center of it. It's always the guy who wrote the book about the Amityville haunting or the guy that wrote the book about the Smurls. Never the people in the middle. I don't know, maybe people just think, hey, we'll be the different ones. We'll be the ones that are going to cash in on this. But, you know, there's there's some great pictures. Uh, a couple really good ones if you check out the site of... I'm going to look at this one real quick and see here. One is just a bunch of chairs, and I can't tell if they're... I think they're levitating and being, like, thrown around the room. At first I thought they were just stacked up, but now that I'm kind of really looking at it and zooming in, that doesn't appear to be the case. And then there's another one. It's basically, this is actually two pic one picture, and then... It's two pictures, but they're side by side. And the other one looks to be someone being picked up by electricity or maybe like ectoplasm. It's coming out of the wall and it's grabbing someone and he's being just pulled up up towards the ceiling over over a table. And that's, that's the first picture. And the second picture is all these chairs. Then just it's, an, it's, an, it's a crazy picture. But, I don't know, I don't, I don't think that there was a lot of hoaxing here. I think they did encounter something. What that is, I mean, my kind of views on ghosts uh, are a lot different than what, probably what a lot of people think of. I'm not a hugely religious person. I believe that there's probably something out there, but we as humans can't possibly fathom what that is. And, I mean, sometimes I think, are we, you know, sometimes I subscribe to the Tulpa theory, the Tulpa theory, that we've just been making up stories about ghosts and cryptids and stuff for so long that our creative energy has actually created these things. And then sometimes I think to myself, is it just like a time thing? Like, we see, you know, someone sees a ghost of a Civil War soldier. Are they seeing a ghost, or is it some sort of weird, you know, time overlap where 
you're not seeing someone who's dead, but you're just seeing someone in the past. Because remember, like, yeah, time's a flat circle. And, you know, it may not be the dead at all. Or is it all just weird trickster phenomenon? Or there are just these things out there in other dimensions, these, we call them demons, we call them whatever. And we're just here, you know, and they just mess with us. It could be a lot of things. I don't, I don't know where it is. I think there's a lot. I mean, I've heard too many stories. I've seen too many kind of good photos to think that there isn't something going on. But don't come to me for answers because all I've got is crazy theories that about what it could be. But the Smurl House, you know, is it's a good one. These are both these are both pretty fun stories. But I'll leave the speculation up to you guys, and I'm going to soldier on with the rest of the episode. We're going to listen to some music, and I want to point out something. Uh, I know that I never, like, credit the music, because I don't know if anyone's figured this out yet or not. I don't really bring attention to it, but I do the music, too. Like, this is a one-man show. I write the show. I research the show. I produce the show. I cater the show. I do all the music for it. So when you hear, like, music, your background music, or you hear these little musical interludes, that's all me. Then that's why I don't, you know, it's not like I didn't get someone to make the music, I didn't buy it. And that's why I guess I never get around to, like, saying who it is, but I'm going to toot my own horn a little bit and say, yeah, I create all that. So we'll be back in a little bit with uh, some local headlines.
and we're back. And we've got some local headlines for this week. The first one is nice and disgusting. A Canadian grave robber caught boiling human skeleton and drinking the broth. This is an article from allthatisinteresting.com. It is written by Marco Margot. Wait, I'm going to get this. Marco Margotov. The 20-year-old robbed the grave of an unidentified 19th century corpse and boiled, licked, and drank the broth of its bones. Didn't bury the lead on that one, did he? Bone broth is not only delicious, but is actually also good for you. The collagen in bone broth benefits the gut lining, reduces intestinal inflammation, and makes for healthier skin. But for the Canadian man who dug up a human skeleton to drink its broth, however, likely had other reasons besides health benefits. According to the Chronicle Herald, 20-year-old Lucas, I want to say it's Daw, D-A-W-E, was charged with possessing a stolen skeleton and interfering with human remains. For reasons still entirely unclear, the young man allegedly stole skeletal remains on April 5th from All Saints Parish Graveyard in Conception Bay, which is a historic Newfoundland cemetery that holds bodies dating back to the 1700s. He then boiled the bones and drank the broth left behind. A witness caught the young man licking the bones. So he must have done this like right in the cemetery. Dahl made his second court appearance last Thursday and since has been busy finding a lawyer. The Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, the RNC, was called into the trailway walking trail near the cemetery for suspicious activity when they discovered the partial skeletal remains on the grass. Dr. Nash Denick, the chief medical examiner of Newfoundland, had never seen anything like it. Dr. Denick explained that this sort of incident was entirely unprecedented during his time as the region's chief medical examiner. Cases like this, this is the first time that I know of, and I was involved in, in Newfoundland, he said. For Sam Rose, the archdeacon of the, and here's another one, uh, Anglican Diocese of Eastern Newfoundland and Labrador, the crime possessed a serious threat to the tradition than anything else. When someone buries their loved one in a graveyard, there's the assumption this will be their final resting place, as we say in the, litur in the liturgy. So when this happens in such a shocking violation of that sacred act, it was shocking for me personally, he told Munchies. I don't know what Munchies is. It's a link. I'm going to hit this. Munchies.advice.com Okay, it's just a link to the article. Another it was like Munchies. Neighbor to the cemetery, Samantha Howley, was equally disturbed by the incident. She and her husband moved to Conception Bay a few years ago. Their back deck has a pristine view of the centuries-old graveyard, which was cordoned off with police tape and guarded by RNC officers in the days following the incident. You read about these kinds of things down in the States, but to happen so close to home, it's pretty crazy, she said. Haley even encountered the suspect on the same weekend he allegedly interfered and stole the unidentified person's remains. The thought of it is quite disturbing, she confessed. With all the robberies in town and Conception Bay South, for this to happen on top of all that, Newfoundland and Labrador is worrisome. To be asleep so close to something so disturbing. In CBS of all places. Even Reverend Rose has been utterly stunned at the events which have occurred in an otherwise predominantly picturesque suburb. This is the type of thing you can never imagine happening, he said. You kind of hear about it happening in a sort of fairy tales and stuff, 
it's quite an unfortunate situation in which a young man with troubles, allegedly, decided to take this action. Reverend Rose explained that the skeletal remains would be reinterred with a special ceremony once the RNC no longer required them as evidence. It's certainly our intention once the investigation is concluded, these remains will be reinterred with the proper dignity and respect that they were initially interred many, many years ago, he said. Police assured that through Dahl's actions were certainly weird, they posed no potential danger to the public. Rose was also keen, clean to clarify that nobody in the community has fostered any rage or feelings of retribution towards the misguided criminal. It's a sad, sad situation, he said. We certainly want to pray for this young man in his time of distress in his life. We don't hold any ill will against anyone struggling with his issues. Certainly this is an unfortunate event. It's just that it's an unfortunate event. Hopefully Dahl has recognized the many errors in his ways. For one, digging a stranger's body out of his permanent resting place is disrespectful, illegal, and to many, literally sacrilegious. Additionally, bone broth can be obtained in other ways that don't end up in jail time. This next one's short and sweet, but it's about Bigfoot, so how could I not do it? Bigfoot once again reportedly spotted in Provo. This is by Carrie Kenner of the Daily Herald, and I'm reading this off of heraldextra.com. From American Fort Canyon to Payson and some hot spots in between, sightings of the mythical monster Bigfoot right here in Utah County are surprisingly more common than you'd think. Whether Sasquatch is a fan of the outdoors or just has a penchant for Happy Valley is up in the air, but the latest sighting shared on YouTube by Austin Craig shows, shows the legendary beast hanging out in the mountains lining the east side of Provo. Seriously, look how big it is, someone can be heard commenting in the video. A moment later, the film cuts and starts again even closer to the alleged sighting, with a large dark figure slowly moving on the mountain. The sighting, which occurred January 2nd, was posted on January 6th and led to some follow-up, not just by Craig, but also the Rocky Mountain Sasquatch Organization. Follow this link for the official follow-up search, which has more than 14,000 views. And if you take a look at the sources, the show notes, whatever, at sts.com and go to this article, embedded in the article they have the original site, which is not the worst Bigfoot video I've ever seen. It is obviously something moving and something very large, uh, considering the scale of what's behind it. And uh, they have a link, like I read at the end there, they have a link that will go over to the follow-up investigation. I'm assuming, I didn't watch that one, from the Rocky Mountain Sasquatch organization. But short and sweet, but hey, Bigfoot sighting. Gotta do Bigfoot sightings when they pop up, right? And this next one I wanted to go into because, quite frankly, I feel it's an important story to get out there. This is uh, from the Indie Star, which is an Indiana paper written by Vic Reichert and Justin L. Mack. The Delphi Murders, new sketch of killer and video from Libby's phone released. If you follow true crime or you follow these at all, you know that this this happened a few years ago. It was two young girls. They were out walking on a trail. They were going across the bridge and they, they were killed. And on one of the girls' phones, I think it was a Snapchat, there is a couple of seconds of a man walking towards them, but they've gotten some new stuff, so I wanted to read this to keep everyone kind of abreast at what is going on here. Wow, this website's a little crazy. It's got videos flashing all around it. Okay. On Monday afternoon, Indiana State Police Superintendent Doug Carter released new video 
audio, and a sketch of the person they believe killed Abigail Williams in Liberty, Germany in February of 2017. A visibly emotional Carter also delivered a powerful message to the killer, a man he believes is still living and working among the people of Delphi. To the killer who may be in this room, we believe you are hiding in plain sight, Carter said. In more than two years, you never thought we would shift gears to a different investigative strategy, but we have. We know this is about power to you. You want to know what we know, and one day, you will. Monday's press conference took place at a packed Wabash and Erie Canal Conference and Interpretive Center in Delphi. Carter acknowledged a large crowd before he began, thanking them for their tireless support of the families and the police. He asked that the community continue to wrap their arms around the families as new information was shared. Carter explained that like the rest of the public, the families learned of the new developments Monday morning. Carter then released an extended version of the original Down the Hill audio clip, recorded on Libby's smartphone, and as well as a short video of a man walking on the Monon High Bridge. That video, also captured by Libby's phone, is the only footage of the man in motion. Carter said that the man is not walking naturally because of a physical deterioration of the bridge. The new sketch shared Monday depicts a man who appears much younger than the original sketch. Carter said the old sketch is now being considered secondary. Master Trooper Taylor Bryant, a sketch artist of the Indiana State Police who drew the new sketch, told IndyStar a sketch is based on how a particular witness describes a suspect. If there were several witnesses, Bryant would draw a sketch for each description. Bryant did not draw the sketch the police released in July of 2017. The witness is the main focus, so there's no input from law enforcement at all in the gathering of a sketch, other than my presence as an artist. Bryant used a facial identification reference sheet that had a list of different categories from head shapes to different eyebrows and noses. The person will describe the suspect based on those categories. It's easier to do that than to describe the suspect using just words, Bryant said. The sketches were not exact, Bryant said. The renderings are a ballpark estimation of what the person looks like. The sketch released on Monday was drawn by Bryant on February 17, 2017, a few days after the victim's bodies were found. The picture was based on the description of a person who saw something that the person felt needed to be reported, according to Bryant. Police are also looking to identify the driver of a vehicle that was parked on the abandoned CPS-DCS welfare building on the east side of Country Road, County Road, sorry, 300 North, near the Hoosier Heartland Highway. The vehicle was parked at the building between the hours of noon and 5 p.m. on the day the girls went missing. Carter said new information leads investigators to believe that the killer is from Delphi. They believe he is either still lives and works in Delphi, or frequently visits. The killer is said to be between the ages of 18 and 40, but may appear to be younger than his true age. Carter added that the police believe that the killer may have told someone in the community about his crime. We have likely interviewed you or someone close to you, Carter said in his address to the killer. A question to you, what will those closest to you think when they find out that you have brutally murdered two little girls? Only a coward would do such a thing. The girls were dropped off near the Monon High Bridge just east of Delphi at about 1 p.m. on February 13, 2017. A family member was supposed to pick them up at the same spot about an hour later. The girls were reported missing sometime after 4 p.m. that day. Searches were conducted that evening and the next morning. The bodies of Libby, 14, and Abby, 13, 
were found February 14, 2017, about 50 feet from Deer Creek and half a mile east of the bridge on the Delphi Historic Trails in Carroll County, Indiana. Additional information about what happened that day was not released Monday, but Carter promised the community that every agency that has already poured thousands of hours of work into this case would not stop until justice is served. To the murder, I believe you have just a little bit of conscience left, and I can assure you that how you left them in that woods is not what they're experiencing today, Carter said. And I want the family to know that when I take my last breath on this earth, I'll be thinking of them. According to an FBI description, the man weighs between 180 and 200 pounds and stands between 5 feet 6 inches tall and 5 feet 8 inches tall. He was wearing blue jeans, a blue jacket or coat, and a hoodie at the time of the killings. So I'm going to play uh, the audio from the phone, the down the hill audio for you. And maybe someone out there will recognize it and can help out. that it is uh, some chilling audio to hear especially when you think about the circumstances surrounding it but I think it's important to get the word out there to as many people as as possible and that has been this week's local headlines and we're back for the final segment of the show the listener stories Tonight we have just one listener, but he's got two stories. And this one comes in from uh, Justin Kyle, who is the host of the Mr. Whiskers Clubhouse podcast. This is what he wrote me on Twitter. My town has a story. Look it up. The Randolph, Vermont, Brook Bennett case. It was pretty big for a small, quiet town. Also, check out Emily's Bridge in Stowe, Vermont. And I found a news article about the murder case he mentioned and Emily's Bridge actually has its own website so we'll check that out here in a second but first the news article uh, this one is entitled Timeline of the Michael Waquez Jaquez I'm going to go with Waquez I think but it might be wrong case from Book Brennan's disappearance to her uncle pleading guilty it's a news article from NBC5 probably the local affiliate I'm assuming this is written by David Schneider Burlington, Vermont. June 25th, 2008 started off like any other day in the normally quiet town of Randolph, Vermont, but it would end much differently. June 25th was the last day 12-year-old Brooke Bennett was seen in public. Her uncle, Michael Waquez, dropped her off at Cumberland Farms in Randolph. What people would not find out until later is that Waquez managed to get Bennett to come back to his home and eventually up to his bedroom. An underage teen, who prosecutors say was coerced by Waquez to help would testify that she was in the house the day before Waquez told her to leave, saw Bennett go into the bedroom, but never saw her come out. On June 26, an Amber Alert is issued and the search for Brooke goes into high gear. Multiple agencies pour resources into the search to no avail. June 29th, Brooke's uncle, Michael, is arrested in the unrelated child sex case. A family member of Waquez testified that he had sex with her and to perform sex acts on a weekly basis, starting when she was 9 or 10 years old. 
Investigators say Walquez communicated to the victim with the victim online, telling her that she was chosen to be part of a sex ring called Breckenridge. She was instructed to be trained in sex acts by her father as part of the induction. Oblivious to the facts that Walquez was sending those emails to manipulate her into having sex, police finally name Walquez as a suspect in Brooke Bennett's disappearance. July 1st, the public learns that Walquez already has a criminal past. In 1993, he was convicted of kidnapping and rape. The victim was an 18-year-old girl he'd raped, choked, gagged, and handcuffed. July 2nd, police announced they found Brooke Bennett's body. It was buried near Walquez's home in Randolph. Investigators say Walquez had accessed Brooke's MySpace page and had altered after she disappeared to try and throw off police. The next day, federal authorities say they may have a case for the death penalty. They say Walquez sent messages to people in other states, including the Brooks' former stepfather, Raymond Gagnon, in Texas, asking for help impeding the investigation. In October, he's indicted for Brooks' death, charged with kidnapping, with death resulting. Court papers reveal Brooke had been drugged, sexually assaulted, strangled, and smothered with a plastic bag. March 4, 2009. Vermont Governor Jim Douglas signs Brooks' law and gives prosecutors new tools to fight sex crimes, including tougher penalties, new prevention programs, and more protection for victims. August 25th, federal prosecutors announce they are seeking the death penalty against Michael Walquez. The following year, more information comes out about Walquez allegedly used Breckenridge to threaten and manipulate victims. In emails, he would threaten young girls, saying their, friend, their friends and family would be killed. Police say Walquez did not get the witness to lie to the police after he was a suspect in the Bennett case. In 2010, Walquez's attorneys tried to get the case moved to Albany, citing possible juror buyers in Vermont after all the press coverage. The following year, a federal judge ultimately denies the request. In 2011, new information comes out that Walquez allegedly killed a dog and hung the carcass in the cellar of the Bennett home to try and convince Brooke she would be killed if she didn't have sex with him. In June 2012, the trial date is finally set for September 2013. In February 2013, concerns arise that the lawyers might have to filter through as many as 5,000 people to seat a jury of, two, of 12 plus alternates. Jury selection was to begin in August by the middle of the month. The plea deal is filed that will send Joaquin to prison for the rest of his life. And the next little uh, tidbit he sent me was about Emily's Bridge, which has this, which has its very own website, uh, emilysbridge.com. Uh, it's got some pictures, it's got some video experiences from around the bridge that we can look into. Oh, just no comments, nothing there. But I'm going to read the story of Emily's Bridge in Stowe, Vermont. Located in Stowe, Vermont, Goldbrook Bridge is not your ordinary covered bridge. The bridge is also known as Emily's Bridge, due to the fact that it is haunted by the ghost named Emily. There are many stories of how Emily died on the bridge. One story is that she was supposed to elope with a lover who was meeting her at the bridge, and when he didn't show up, she hung herself from the rafters. Another version of this Vermont legend also start, starts as a love story. Emily met a man who stole her heart, and the couple made plans to marry. That fateful day arrived, and Emily went to the church in her beautiful red wedding dress, ready to give herself to the gentleman in holy wedlock. The groom never arrived, and the jilted bride took the family wagon in a frenzy and anger and sorrow. She was merciless on the horses, and whipped them until they were traveling at an incredible pace, planning perhaps to confront the faithless groom. 
As she approached the bridge, she failed to negotiate the turn right before the bridge and drove the horses and carriage over the bank and onto the rocky brook below. Both the horses and Emily were killed in the accident. There is no written historical evidence that Emily ever existed, however. The first mention of the bridge being haunted by someone named Emily came after 1968 when a high school student wrote a paper on the subject claiming that while he, she, was using a Ouija board on the bridge, an entity presented itself named Emily. Other people using Ouija boards have reported the entity has identified itself as Emily and said that she was killed on the bridge by her fiancé's mother. Strange Happenings Many people who have visited the bridge have experienced disturbing paranormal activity. People have reported scratch marks appearing on vehicles that were parked on the bridge and being touched or scratched by Emily's ghost. Often strange noises are heard on the bridge, such as footsteps, ropes tightening, and a girl screaming. Many have also reported seeing a white apparition around the area of Emily's bridge. People who have parked their vehicle on the haunted bridge say they tend to hear banging noises from Emily hitting the vehicle on the outside or, dra or a dragging sound across the top of their cars. The most distinct paranormal events tend to take place between the hours of 12 a.m. and 3.30 a.m. So, uh, two very different stories there. Some true crime and some ghosts from Justin. So thanks again, Justin. And that will do it this week for uh, Listener Stories. And that is a wrap for Episode 4 of Small Town Secrets. Once again, I want to thank everyone who is listening. If you like the show, there's a couple things you can do to support it for right now. One is leave a review, rate, review, subscribe, all that great stuff on your podcatcher of choice, especially if it's on iTunes. Uh, if you would like, and you know someone that would like the show, then please tell a friend. Word of mouth is a big deal. Word of mouth will help a lot get a chance go visit stscast.com you can find a bunch of stuff there if you want to submit your own small town secret your own listener story to the show there is a email form at the bottom of the main page that you can do that with or you can hit me up on social media i'm most active on twitter uh, i'm also on facebook and instagram twitter and facebook are the same handle it's at stscast Instagram is the thorn in my side. It's the different one. That is stscast.gram. Yeah. Also on the site, you can find uh, all the sources that I've used for all the episodes, all the pictures that I've cobbled together for the episodes. You can also find links to merch if you would like and just a bunch of other stuff. So once again, thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, more small town secrets. Remember, every town has a secret. What is yours?
The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 